Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We'll read verses 4 through 10. 1 John 3, verse 4 through 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you give us instruction in the Word of God that counters so much of the lie that is involved in the world. The culture can speak to us so loudly sometimes that we embrace it more than we do the world. And I pray today that we will learn as we sit at your feet and learn from you that you expect us to live holy, righteous lives. You empower us to do that. May we commit ourselves to that very end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were talking from chapter 2, verse 28 through verse 3 of chapter 3, and we were actually addressing this very issue of living a holy life. You'll recall that verse 3 ended with this thought that, and everyone who has this hope, the hope of the return of Christ and the hope of the redemptive work of God, fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. The expectation of a conversion experience is that we live a transformed life. We live a holy life. This is what he's been trying to say, in fact, in verse 1 of chapter 3, that see how great a father, a love the Father has put up, bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And then he goes on to say that as children of God, there are manifested differences in our lives as a result of our conversion experience. It's inevitable. We have to change. There will be evidence that will speak to that end. And he spoke of that even the fact that we know about the love of God. We know about the righteousness of God. In fact, we have learned enough that we should abide in Christ that we have learned that everything we need in life comes from God. We can trust Him. He's more than enough. And that's what He's speaking to us about. 
So the title of the message today is, Who is Your Father? And it's a crucial question because whoever your father is, that's the one you'll become like. My sisters tell me when I go back there now as I've gotten older, and I'll hear them say under their breath, he's just like dad. He's just like dad. Now, I haven't been around my dad for over 25 years, and yet there is a DNA, there is birth within me, the reality of my father, and it'll come out. Uh, Now, even sometimes as I sit and study, I'll do this. I grab my chin. It's easier these days, but I'll grab my chin just like this. And you say, why do you do that? Does that clear up your mind? No. I do this. It's what Dad did. We become like our Father. Uh, Jesus has that as our testimony, that we should be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. So to suggest that there could be a transformation, that there could be a conversion experience without transformation is really a lie. And that's what John is actually addressing for us here. I love what the Scriptures talks about, this very thing about who's your father. There's very clear testimony that's given in regards to this. Romans 8, verses 14 and 15, I love that. It says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God... These are sons of God, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is a very dear term of endearment. It speaks of an intimate relationship. I remember the first time I ever heard that expressed in a public setting was over in Israel, and I was going up one of those uh, hills, and they were digging out stuff, and there was this little child that ran by me, and, and his, her father was ahead, and she was hollering, Abba, Abba. That's the first time I'd ever heard it in just practical, everyday language. And I'm thinking, as soon as she said that, I said, oh, Abba. Abba, I'm your child. It says the same thing in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a slave, you are heir through God. Or I just like the way we pray that Jesus taught us. When you pray, you pray this way. Our Father, our Father. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of relational intimacy. So we are thankful that through the finished work of Christ, we can call Him our Father. However, if you're not born again, if you don't know God, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then you're still of another Father that John speaks of in the 8th chapter when he says in John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in truth, um, and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. Therefore, when he speaks, he, he lies. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So either in our lives, we will be conforming to our Father, Heavenly Father, God, or we'll be influenced and being shaped by the satanic influence that is in the world. It's amazing to me that when I did funerals, and sometimes I would be asked to do funerals of people that I didn't know. And when I would meet with a family, I would ask them, did they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? And they'll say something like this, well, you know, um, I think, and this person could have been in their early 80s, and I think sometime when he was a teenager, he's going to some meeting, and I think he did pray the sinner's prayer. And I listened to that, and what I really want to do is press harder into that. I said, so when he, as a teenager, accepted the Lord, what were some of the changes that came about in his life? No, there's no changes in his life. He was an angry man. He was a drunkard. Now, they don't always say that, but I discovered that later on. I said, he was all of those things. I said, so you're telling me that he knew God but lived like the devil. And that's impossible. You cannot, and this is what John is addressing, you cannot be a child of God, as he speaks of in verse 1 of chapter 3, and then live like the devil. Now, the amazing, it it just can't happen. It can't happen. It won't happen. It never will happen. It's just impossible. An oxymoron. So this is why John is writing this letter. Uh, It's written to the church at large, even to us today, because there was a teaching that was going on in the church that was saying it didn't matter if you sinned. You could actually profess to know God and just sin. It didn't matter. Uh, We got introduced to that understanding by uh, Pastor Aaron when he talked about Gnosticism, uh, meaning knowledge, a special knowledge that you have. We'll look at that in a moment. But this was spreading through the church. And we need to understand who John was. John was the last surviving apostle. And uh, he was uh, in the city of Ephesus. He also spent some time in the Isle of Patmos. That's where he got the the revelation concerning the revelation, the book. Uh, but then he settled into this, the city of Ephesus, and Ephesus was a central hub for a lot that was going on in the world at that time. It was a very influential area. In fact, Paul, when he was there and met with the elders for the last time, he told them, he says, you must be very, very careful because when I leave... There will be those who come from within this fellowship that will teach you that which is contrary to the Word of God. And uh, so he warned them in regards to this. From this church and from this region, Gnosticism was coming forth. Gnosticism, which became part of an expression within a church, was actually advocated by the society around which was talking about dualism. Dualism was advocated by Plato, 
And you know, oftentimes, this is just a side note here, oftentimes the church can be so influenced by the culture around it that the culture speaks louder to our lives than the revelation of God and has greater authority than the revelation of God. That's exactly what was going on in the church at this time. So John, as an apostle who had the, uh, the authority and the power, and people would seek after him, hearing more and more of this, seeing that it was dividing the church of Ephesus, that there were those who were saying, and this was part of Gnosticism, it was saying that we have special enlightenment. We have special insight. We know things that God doesn't even know. I mean, really, because they're getting it from a source. I mean, that's not true, but then we just know stuff. And if you become initiated into our understanding, you can embrace that. So there's some complications you can well see with dualism that would come about. And dualism is simply this, that flesh is evil, spirit is good. So it doesn't really matter what takes place in the flesh as long as your spirit is good. In fact, any deeds that you do in the flesh will just simply be burned up. It's your spirit that goes on forever. We'll see some implications of that in a moment, but we see a serious implication to the doctrine of atonement. Because Jesus, as we see in John and other gospels there, we see that uh, in the beginning was the was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later down in that same first chapter, it says, and the Word became flesh. That's a problem for those who believed in Gnosticism, because wait a minute, if He became flesh, then that would be evil. How can He be evil? So they came up with all kinds of different theories as to what that could possibly be. One was that Jesus really didn't exist, but he was really a ghost. Docetism was what the whole came out of that. It was a whole doctrinal belief that was there, that he was just a ghost. Well, this is what you see the context then, if you read Roman, uh, the first chapter of 1 John, when John is speaking there, he says, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you about Jesus. He's the one I heard. He's the one I saw. He's the one I touched. He was the one, and if we go on with that, he was the one I saw after the resurrection. He's the one that I saw before the crucifixion. He's the one I saw on the cross. It's not an aberration. It's not a ghost. It's a reality. It was his flesh. And so already, John, the apostle, with the authority that he had as an apostle, was refuting the false doctrine. The second major wave of heresy that came into the church in the early church was this very doctrine, the doctrine of Gnosticism. Now, it's kind of interesting because, you know, the first wave was Paul dealt with that. The first wave was that you needed to have the law incorporated into the gospel or you couldn't be saved. In other words, there was too much emphasis placed on the law as a means of redemption. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law, but it was seeing the law as a means by which you could be saved. Well, Paul refuted that false doctrine. He did it in the book of Galatians. He did it in the book of Romans. He even did it in the book of Ephesians when he says, for by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And so he had to clearly define that it was not through the law, even though by the law it can be made aware of sin, he was able to refute that first major heresy. 
But as Paul warned in the church of Ephesus that there would be false teachings that would come, in reality it did, even after that. And this was the doctrine that came. And they fought that for several hundred years. And in fact, it was in church history of Chalcedon that we had the gathering together of some 500 bishops, and the whole committee came together under the authority of the Roman Empire that said, get this issue squared away. Is Jesus Christ very much human and very much deity? Is he both? And they came out with a clear statement then of the hypostatic union, which is he is both very much God and very much human. So they did away with that. And John was addressing that as well. Now, just as a side note, you think, well, why are you going into all of that? Because I believe that not only did it happen in the early church, but false teaching can come into any church at any age, and we have to be aware of the basis of our authority. And is it going to be a consensus of men, a public opinion, or is it going to be based upon the revealed Word of God? And particularly the testimony of those who were eyewitnesses, in this case, John himself. So what he is addressing here then is, is it possible as a believer just to sin as you please and have no bearing upon your redeemed relationship or your proclamation that you're a child of God? Can, is, that, is that possible? Can you say that I'm of my Father God and not have that manifested in things of God? Or can I still be a, under my father Satan and do God's stuff? Impossible. We looked at that. So, John Stott really does us a good favor here. When we look at these verses, sometimes it can appear to be a little confusing here what he's going on saying in this verse here, these verses. But he actually, um, he does this, uh, John Stott does a good favor by breaking this down into two sections. And the two sections bear the same argument. And so if we can see that one argument is being carried out with two themes or two illustrations here, then it helps us a little bit. So he begins by saying, first of all, everyone, verse 4, everyone who practices sin, I should just say what John Stott says. This is the thing that Jan often tells me that when I, when I preach, sometimes I don't finish the story. I'll finish the story here, okay? John Stott breaks it down like this. In verse 4, he says, sin is serious because it rebels against God. In verse 8, he carries the same theme from a little different direction when he says, sin is serious because it originates with the devil. Two reasons why sin is serious. Sin is also serious because in verse 5, it says, it opposed Christ appearing to take away sin. And it also is serious because in verse 8 it says it opposes Christ's appearance to destroy Satan. So, sin is serious because it's rebellion against God. Sin is serious because it makes you look like you're Satan, of Satan. Sin is serious because it opposes the central message of Christ and it it opposes to the very enemy of Christ, which is Satan himself. And finally, he just goes on to say two more arguments. A true Christian does not live in sin. 
A true Christian practices righteousness. That's what he says in verse 6 and 7. That's what he says in verse 9 and 10. A true Christian cannot live in sin, and a Christian practices righteousness. So we'll take these as they come in the Scripture here and look at them, okay? Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. This word lawlessness is where we also, from the Greek word there, we get uh, the term uh, anonomianism, which is against law. So (laughs) I just love the way the church swings from one extreme to the other. In the first place, they were saying, sin, uh, the, the law is so important. It's so important that if we don't keep it, we're not saved. And now we've swung the pendulum to this other side and saying, sin doesn't matter. It's only of the flesh. It's only the spirit that matters. We have a hard time staying in a state of tension in the church, balanced in terms of what we believe. But everyone who practices sin, now that word practices sin means who habitually is in a sin nature that participates in the activities of sin. And this sin is clearly demonstrated as the practice, the habitual practice of lawlessness. And that word lawlessness is really talking about a state of rebellion against God. So John is already refuting the, the false teaching that was going on at that time because they were saying it, it doesn't matter because I can sin and still say that I'm with God. And, and Paul, uh, John is saying here, no, it can't be that way. Do you not understand that when you sin, you declare that you are in opposition to the truth of God? Now, we see that he says later on, he says, don't be deceived. Do you not understand that Satan is in the business of deceiving us? And he's always in the business of suggesting to us that either truth is a lie or that God is inadequate. Notice then where the first deception took place in humanity was in with Adam and Eve. And um, Satan approaches them and he says, what did God say in regards to this? He really didn't say it. He suggested it was not true. He said, don't you see that by what God is trying to do of not letting you eat this fruit so that you'll gain the knowledge of truth and evil, you don't have that, you're, you're at a disadvantage. But if you eat this fruit, then you can know just as I do. And he deceived them, and they acted in a state of rebellion against the authority of God and suffered the consequences. Anytime we go up against the truth of God's Word, the commandments of God's Word, and follow that which is in our own liking and desire— We put ourselves in rebellion against God, in opposition to God in that that way. Now, again, you can see where they had that conclusion. If I separate spirit and flesh, then I can just do as I please. It doesn't really matter. I can sin as I wish. Now, if there is no absolute authority, as there was in the garden, God said, which was his privilege as the sovereign God of the universe— Everything else you can have, but this you cannot. This was a proclamation of his absolute authority. You must not do this. And they did it anyway, and they, and they suffered as a result of that. And so when you, when you think about this uh, attitude of rebellion against uh, the authority of God, that is the definition of sin. It is challenging the character of God and the goodness of God and following what we desire to do on our own. 
and calling it good in that process. Okay? Now, the fruit of that is, if there is no absolute authority, as I was going to say, if there's no absolute authority then, the fruit of that is chaos. It has to be. Because, and we're hearing that today, by the way, every individual is an authority unto themselves. I'll do this because that's what I choose to do. And you do whatever you want. And so we have all of this stuff going on from from, um, uh, disrespect for the law, the disrespect for law enforcement people. We have all of that because it is, they have no right to rule over me. Who do they think they are? And who gave them that right? And and so we, we disrespect the authoritative boundaries that are established by God. And the fruit of that is chaos. That's what we see even in the book of of, uh, Judges there. Every man did that which was right in his own eye. I'll determine what's right or wrong. Well, as one man says, your rights uh, ends where my nose begins. In other words, you may be pugilistic. You may go out and fight. But when it comes to my territory, I rule this part. Now, both are saying the same thing. I just just rule. I'm the one that's in charge. Neither are in charge. Only God is in charge. So now they have rewritten the rule book here, as we see being done today. We have rewritten the the rule book, and we are saying sin does not matter. Everybody sins. You mess up every once in a while. It's no big deal. No big deal. Well, John goes on to say it's a big deal to God, because here it says in verse 5, you know that he appeared... I love that he appeared. In other words, he was really here, not an imagination, not a thing. But he appeared for what purpose? In order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So he's still speaking against this false doctrine. He was flesh, but he was not sin. And in fact, he came to deal with taking away sin. Jesus, so, so you can see this argument going on between God or this discussion going on between God the Father and God the Son in the garden. And Jesus says, and I'm about ready to die for the sins of the world. And uh, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And so the father says, you know, son, I've been thinking about this. Sin's no big deal. It's not a big deal. We'll just do another. We'll just forget about all of that stuff. And we'll just say that sin doesn't matter. And the only thing that matters is sin. Flesh doesn't mean anything. Don't go to the cross. We've got another way to do it. It makes a complete mockery of the necessity of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If sin doesn't matter, why did he die? The only way sin could be dealt with. And Jesus looked down and he saw the despicable condition of mankind. He saw the the ugly, self-centered, self-righteous condition of mankind moving towards uh, that which is contrary to God on every basis. And he said, in order to bring them back, I'm going to have to deal with sin. And he does in his own flesh, on the cross, receiving the wrath of God in substitutionary atonement that we may have life. Did sin matter to Christ? So listen to this. Here are these people within the church that are saying to other people, sin doesn't matter. Then I, and John would ask, because he was part of the church, he says, well, then please tell me, Why did Jesus Christ die? It makes no sense. We should never minimize sin. It is an act of rebellion against the authority of God. And when we sin, we act as if the death of Christ had no effect upon our lifestyle or our sin nature. 
It radically transforms us. We have the power, and it says, to take away sin. He takes away sin, even the judgment in regards to that. Then he goes on to say something here. It's rather kind of interesting. He says, so he's given two lines of argument here. You can't just sin because that's rebellion against God. You can't say I'm with God and rebelling with Him at the same time. That doesn't make sense. And furthermore, the Christ dying on the cross was for no purpose if sin doesn't matter. And then he goes on to say from a very practical implication here, verse 6, no one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. In other words, The redemptive work of God has such an impact upon you that it does transform you. But if you haven't been changed, then of course you can tolerate sin. You don't even have the spirit of righteousness abiding within you. You don't have the Holy Spirit within you. It doesn't make any difference what you do. But here I know for a fact, and you know this as well. As a believer in Christ, and we do know we can sin, because we see that even as if a man says he I don't sin, he's a liar. We also see from what John has already said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So that's a restorative relationship that I have with God in fellowship. So we know that we can sin, but what is he saying? He says, no one who abides in him. That is, if I'm habitually linked with God, as he tells us, even in uh, verse 28 of chapter 2, that we abide in Him. We have all of our resources coming from Him. And then in that state, I then move into sin. Whatever that might be, I lust, or, or, or I lie, or I exaggerate, or whatever. I, I move into sin. But here's the thing. I can't abide in that sin. You notice that? Do you notice the power, the conviction of God that He brings into our life? Immediately, we know that we have done wrong. And it's what we do with that. But it is not as if sin doesn't matter. I told the guys on Wednesday morning about when Jan and I were driving across the country and um, I was wanting her to look and make sure we were on the right road and look at the phone. And um, she doesn't really like that. She doesn't like tech stuff, and that's good. And I don't care if she does or not. Uh, but at this time, we were talking, and she doesn't want me to look at it while I'm driving. I don't do that. I don't do that. Oh, maybe I do sometimes. And so then we actually, I found myself saying unkind words to Jan over a significant issue. A map on a phone. I mean, that's worth sinning over. So then, as soon as I did that, I knew before God I was wrong. You know what I mean? And so I knew where we were driving that there were windmills that came on the road down there. And I said to God, who was convicting me of sin, I said, God, I'm going to give Jan until we get to the windmill to to confess her sin to me. And I'm not dealing with her sin. There was some sin on her part as well. The phone didn't break. <clears throat> but <laughs> we got to the windmills. She hadn't said anything. Now, I then decided, am I, how long am I going to live with this sin? How long am I going to live with that and be miserable like this? And so I just looked, and I said, you know, Jen, I'm sorry. What I said to you and my attitude towards you was completely wrong. I've confessed that before God, and I confess it for you. 
Would you please forgive me? Yes. And then you kind of want to put a comma there, hoping that there's more conversation. (laughs) But it's not my job to deal with other people's sin. It's my job. But here's the thing I want you to understand. It was impossible for me to continue on in that journey without dealing with the conviction that God had put upon me over sin. I can't live in that. And that's what he's telling us here. In fact, he goes on in verse verse, uh, 7 to say, little children, I love that sense of intimacy, make sure no one deceives you. And there was deception that was going on. And the deception that was going on is that sin doesn't matter. All sin matters. You cannot trivialize that. You cannot make gray sins and white sins and black sin. If you offend the law in one point, you're guilty of all. You have that sin. So here's where it's dealing with that. But here he says, little children, don't let people deceive you about what sin is. And I really want God to tell me what sin is. I want God to tell me what righteousness is. He says, the, the one who practices righteousness, habitually practices that, is righteous. It is the evidence that God has declared him to be righteous because he does do righteous. And he says, and by the way, the standard is Christ himself, just as he is righteous, verse 7. So he dealt with the first part. You can't continue in sin. It puts you in rebellion against God. It makes a mockery of the sacrificial work of Christ. And it is not your new nature to live in sin. And it is your nature to practice righteousness. He goes with the second line of arguments here. And the second line of arguments is that sin is serious because it originates with the devil. Notice what he says in the first part of 8. The one who practices sin, that is, who eventually states in sin, is of the devil. And why does he say that? Because the devil has sinned from the beginning. So, So you can say what you want, John is saying. You can say that you're of God and you live in sin, then you really are not of God. You're of the devil because sin originated with him and you find yourself in alignment with the devil. Now, the sin of the devil primarily is he wants to overthrow God. We see that in Isaiah chapter 14. I will, five I wills. I will be like the Most High God. I will be God. And that's the desire of Satan. He wants to be God. He wants people to worship him. And the very heart of our lives is that when we want to indulge ourselves in the freedom of whatever we want to do, we're saying we want to be like God. We want to be God. He says, so if you want to continue on with your false teaching here about sin doesn't matter, then please understand you're now in another category, and that is you find yourself in allegiance to Satan. I wish John would just be a little bit more subtle in terms of this. He he goes on to say that the reason it doesn't make sense further is that the Son of God, the continuation of verse 8, the Son of God appeared, and I love that word, he says it again, appeared. He was here. You keep saying it's an apparition. He was here. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose. What purpose? Just as he says he he came in order to take away sin, this purpose is, is that he might destroy the works of the devil. So, well, how does he destroy the works of the devil? Well, ultimately, we see, even as we talked about in Sunday school class this morning, that Satan and, and the beast and the, and the false prophet are all cast into hell. He's judged. He's confined. He never will have any influence to deceive anymore. He came to destroy that. And the primary thing that he destroys is, is that people believe that they're held in bondage to sin. 
and there is no deliverance. Or if there is deliverance, it depends upon you. Now, now please understand that. The lie of Satan is, that he wants to destroy, is that uh, you are locked into sin, and the only way you can ever get rid of it is through your own effort. And Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, bore our sins, proved to be victorious over it, coming out of the grave, and he says, no, you're not in bondage to sin. No, there is a way of your escape. There is a way of freedom. There is a way of deliverance. I've made that provision for you. Now, John would be saying here in this process, if you want to find yourself in agreement with Satan, as I've said in verse 8b, a, then what you really understand is, is that you have no understanding of God's delivering power over sin and Satan. And then he comes back to the two practical implications again. Verse 9, no one who is born of God, now we're talking about a father-son relationship, a birth process, a new life, no one who is born of God practices sin. That is, you can just put it in the present tense, habitually stays in the context of sin. I can't live there forever, ever, ever, ever. That's why it doesn't make sense to me that a person can say that they accepted Christ at 13 and live for 65 years and never shows any form of transformation and engage in all kinds of sin. It doesn't make sense. Which reminds me of a story. This guy brother died. And um, his brother was really a reprobate and um, all, all kinds of sin. And, and so this guy came to the pastor, who was not a member of the church, this guy wasn't, and he said, I wonder if you'd do my brother's funeral for me. He said, uh, okay, uh, but I want you to tell the people what a saint he was. And if you do that, I'm going to contribute $20,000 towards your building fund. The pastor said, write the check. Came to the funeral. He said, I want to tell you that the man we're burying today was a reprobate. He was a liar. He was a drunk. And he was a thief. And the brother was sitting there thinking, hey, this is not part of the deal. And he says, he's a womanizer. He did all of this stuff. This is who he was. But compared to his brother who survived him, he's a real saint. <laughs> Just saying. So, so we see, we see, and this is what they're really saying is that I can be a saint be aligned with Satan and do the things of Satan. And do it. it doesn't make sense. He says, but the one who is born of God does not practice habitual sin because the seed, the birth of Christ takes place in him and he cannot sin. In other words, he cannot stay in a habitual state of sin because he is born of God. Twice it says, I've been born of God. There is a reason that I'm living differently. It's because of him. Then he says in verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does uh, not love his brother. He gets into that next section. We'll look at that, verse 11, through about 18 or so next week, Lord willing. But he's saying, no, if you're, if by this, children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. By what? By your relationship with sin by your attitude towards sin, by your relationship to Christ who has provided for us deliverance from sin and deliverance from the influence of Satan. And, and to suggest that you can just go on with life and do as you please without any sense of transformation is a lie. So how do I know you're a child of God? How do you know if I'm a child of God? It should be obvious. 
We had in a Bible study that we taught about uh, 25 years ago, we had t- actually had two men in our Bible study. It was a uh, more men and women Bible study, but we had two men that were in the Bible study that had never met their biological father. It was really kind of interesting. I never, in the same study, and the one was able to trace it down, and we encouraged him, and he had family down in Florida that he's able to go down to, and it was wonderful. But the other one discovered that his biological father just lived across the pond here, on the other side, in the Seattle area there. And they decided that they would meet each other. And so this man said, well, to his, to his father on the phone, he said, well, how will I know you? I mean, you're going to have some kind of special hat on? or something. He said, no. He said, look, if you're my son, I'll know it. And so he got off the ferry boat, looked over there. They looked at each other. It was like they were looking at mirror images of each other. And they embraced each other, father and son. It was obvious that this man was this father's son. It is obvious we are the children of God. So what is our summary here? Be careful with people who make light of sin because they insult God. And they will move you into a pattern of callous disobedience and practice constantly the awareness when sin moves in, confess it and walk in righteousness and walk in freedom. What a great joy and privilege that is. I can walk in freedom as you can. Lord, thank you. Thank you that uh, you have set us free through great sacrifice on your part. Not your sin. It says you had no sin. Even John tells us of that. But you took our sins. And you bore the wrath of God. And came forth from the grave victorious over death and sin. And came and preached peace to us and freedom. We have this freedom at great cost. Our sin took you there. Your gracious atonement delivered us from our sin. We thank you for that. We make no light of that. I pray that we would be believers that are following you that tolerate no level of sin in our lives. Even right now, search our heart, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. 